and welcome to episode 117 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Allegi. It's nice to be back in the studio after a few months hiatus. And it's also a great privilege to introduce our special guest, Albie Sachs, retired South African judge, author, and human rights activist. I spoke with Albie during his recent visit to Michigan State University, where he was awarded an honorary doctorate of laws at our undergraduate commencement. During a break in the action, we tucked into a side room, and we recorded this interview on the fly. Albie Sachs' career in human rights started as a teenager when he participated in the defiance campaign of 1952, a mass mobilization against apartheid led by Nelson Mandela. At the age of 21, he started practicing law, working to defend people charged under racist statutes and security laws. After being arrested and being placed in solitary confinement in the early 1960s, Sachs went into exile in Britain. He spent 11 years studying and teaching law there, followed by another 11 years as a professor of law in Mozambique. And it was in Maputo in 1988 that he barely survived an assassination attempt by the apartheid regime, losing his right arm and sight in one eye after a car bombing. Two years later, Sachs became a member of the Constitutional Committee of the African National Congress. Mandela appointed Sachs to South Africa's new constitutional court, the country's highest court, in 1994, on which he served for 15 years. Someone once described Sachs as the most literary of lawyers. Indeed, he has written more than a dozen books, starting with The Jail Diary of Albie Sachs in 1966, which was adapted for a play by the Royal Shakespeare Company and broadcast by the BBC in 1981. Sachs has twice won South Africa's prestigious Alan Payton Award for nonfiction. In 1991, for his book, Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter, which chronicles his response to the 1988 car bombing, and in 2009 for the judicial memoir, The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law. His most recent book is Oliver Tambo's Dream, published in 2017, a reflection on the importance of constitutionalism, land reform, and other burning issues in the country today. so much for taking the time to speak with Africa Past and Present. When I first read The Soft Ventions of a Freedom Fighter, I was struck by how intimate uh, a book it was, and how it was kind of a blueprint of how to destroy your enemy by embracing him in a way. And as a young person, you know, you don't often think like that. When I read it, I was young and idealistic and full of verve. Um, and now, when I reread the uh, a more recent version, I noticed that you said that maybe you want to do away with the idea of vengeance altogether. So, not even a soft vengeance, but no vengeance. Could you explain what you meant by that? I'm going to begin at what for me was the beginning, the 6th of April, 1952. There are not many audiences that I can ask, where were you, or do you remember what happened on that date? And 
It was a special date in South Africa because on the 6th of April, 1652, a Dutch commander called Jan van Riebeek had landed from his boat in Cape Town, planted the Dutch flag, and declared this a possession of the Dutch East India Company. And that, we were told at school, was the beginning of the history of South Africa, the beginning of white civilization on the African continent. It's 300 years later. The Afrikaner nationalist government that had recently got into power on the policy of a thing they called apartheid was celebrating. The airplanes were flying overhead, the armored cars through the streets. It was a public holiday. They felt triumphant. And about 200 of us were in a small hall in a working class area of Cape Town, maybe 190 black, 10 whites, and we were singing. And we were from the African National Congress or supporters of the ANC. And the songs in those days were very sad. My boy, my boy. My boy, Africa, come back, come back, come back, Africa. Senzenina, 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 Senzenina. What have we done to deserve this? And suddenly, Dr. Morocco, Dr. Dadu, J.B. Marks, Katani Deba Papi, volunteers obey the orders, be ready for the action now. Volunteers obey the orders, and they're calling for volunteers. The 6th of April, 1952, the beginning of the Defiance of Unjust Laws campaign. Overwhelmingly black audience in this particular space, and they've been called up to volunteer to put their names down to defy the apartheid laws. It meant sitting on seats marked for whites only, crossing on bridges marked for whites only. It meant going to beaches marked for whites only. It meant black men walking in the streets without carrying their passes, which they had to produce on demand to any policeman that they have to produce, even if the police barge, barge into their houses at night without a warrant, they had to produce defying those laws. It, it meant black people being out on the streets after curfew hour at night without a note from their boss or their madam uh, allowing them to be out on the streets, voluntarily defying those laws. And I want to join, and the singing is strong, and I want to say, take me, take me, and I say to my friend, uh, Wolfie Kodish, who brought me there, I want to join. He says, you can't. I say, why? Because you're white. I said, we're fighting racism. He says, it's a black struggle led by black people, but I'll pass on the information. Uh, and six months later, he passed on the information, and two groups of white, led by of white people, joined in the Defiance of Unjust Laws campaign, one in Johannesburg, near Johannesburg, and one in Cape Town. I was the leader. There were four of us. We went into a post office. We sat down on seats marked non-whites only. Now, I, I mention that story because um, I asked the question, what's the one good thing that apartheid did? And the South African audience gets very, very, very nervous. 
And I say the one good thing apartheid did was to create anti-apartheid. I was volunteer number 8,492, something like that. Volunteer number one was a certain youngish lawyer called Nelson Mandela. And if it hadn't been for apartheid, we'd never have met. He grew up in rural Eastern Cape area, destined for a role as a chief, which he refused. He ran away from the family, got involved in the struggle in Johannesburg, became a lawyer there. I was from a cosmopolitan family, uh, Jews who'd fled our grandparents from Lithuania, from the pogroms, the massacres of Jews, uh, to escape from the physical violence involved with the anti-Semitism of, of that age and that place. What would I and Mandela ever have to bring us together, ever? But it was joining in the Defiance of Unjust Laws campaign that made us, in that sense, comrades. Uh, and it changed my life. I won't say it changed his life, but it was part and parcel of, of, of his life. And I was very struck at the way the music changed from the sad songs of the oppressed people to the defiant songs mm. of mm. people now in resistance. I fast forward, was it ten years, um, an advocate practicing as a barrister at the bar in Cape Town and um, thrown into solitary confinement. No charge, no access to lawyers, family, nothing, just locked up in a concrete cube, a cell. I stare at my toes, at the wall, my toes, the wall. It's called the 90-day law. You can be locked up for 90 days, but you never know if it's going to be prolonged more and more and more. And having been in the movement, resistance movement, we read prison literature, we imagined what it would be like, but I found it worse than anything I'd imagined. It wasn't even physical violence. Just human beings, we are made to be in contact with other human beings. Mm -hmm. It's inhuman mm -hmm. to be in solitary. And then I would sing songs to keep myself animated alive. Uh, I would try and remember all the states of the United States of America. I wasn't sure if there were 50 or 52, and I couldn't write down the names. I had to just remember. Then I had two arms, so it was 10 fingers. I could get up to 10. Um, and I remember starting with, used to say, uh, Alabama, Arkansas, uh, going Arizona. Uh, and I think I once got up to about 47. But the thing I enjoyed the most was um, singing. And I would go through the alphabet uh, always because Charmaine, uh, anybody wants to know what the hit tunes in, in Southern Africa were in 1963, can just look at the list that I made of the songs that I sang then. <laughs> it would, they would come six months later from the Northern Hemisphere mm. down to, the, to mm. there. Uh, and my favorite was, was Always. And uh, I would sing the song. It was an Irving Berlin song that he wrote as a love song to his wife. I'll be loving you always with a love that's true always. And it's been used by the English playwright Noel Coward, who did plays of upper middle class comedies and so on, uh, in one of his uh, plays called Blythe Spirit. And I'll be loving you always. It was the spirit that went on forever. And I converted the words into I'll be living here always, year after year, always, in this little cell 
that I know so well. I'll be living swell, always. And I'd sort of waltz around and feel amused that this spirit of this young revolutionary in a cell in Cape Town being kept alive by the song of upper middle class manners in, 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 in the West End in London. I'll be staying in always, keeping up my chin always, not for that, but a day, not for but a week, not for 90 days, but always. I sing this song often now when I'm asked as a judge to, to speak. Mm. And I particularly enjoy it if they're judges in the audience because they can't stop me. Uh, and it's always useful to subvert the idea of a judge as a solemn mm. person wrapped in pure abstract rationality detached from the world mm. uh, as if judges don't have a life experience, don't have emotion. Uh, and this was an emotion that in a sense fed into my um, work that I did later on on developing our constitution and my work as a judge on the Constitutional Court. The third song I'll sing related to my experience. I'm in Mozambique. I'm helping to build up a new legal system in newly independent Mozambique. It's the 7th of April, uh, Dia de Mulher Mozambicana, the day of the Mozambican woman, a public holiday. And I'm going to the beach in the morning, meetings in the afternoon, and going down to my car and suddenly total darkness. I know something terrible is happening to me. I don't know what it is. I feel I'm being pulled. And I say in English and Portuguese, uh, leave me, leave me. Um, I'd rather die here. I think I'm being kidnapped and taken in a car to South Africa across the border to be thrown into jail. And then total obscurity, nothingness. And I hear a voice that says, uh, LB, this is Eva Guridu. You're in the Maputo Central Hospital. Your arm is in lamentable condition. You must face the future with courage. And I say into the darkness what happened, and a woman's voice says, it was a car bomb. And I feel euphoric. That moment every freedom fighter is waiting for, will they come for me? Will they come today? If they come, will I be brave? Will I get through? And they'd come for me, and they tried to kill me, and I'd survived. I was in the hands of the Mozambican authorities, our comrades, and I would survive. Some time must have passed. I feel I'm very light, very tranquil. I'm lying on my back. I can't see anything. And I tell myself a joke. And it's about Hami Cohn, like me as a Jew, falls off a bus, and he does what appears to be the sign of the cross, and someone says, Jaime, I didn't know you were Catholic. What do you mean Catholic? Spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch. And <laughs> I started with testicles. Seemed to be all in order. And the amusing thing was I who tried all my life to be macho without any success became the hero in the ANC camps. The first thing Comrade Albi did was reach for his balls. Uh, I feel my heart, wallet, seems to be okay. If there's brain damage, I feel my head, spectacles. That could be very serious. There's a crater there, but it doesn't seem to have penetrated. And then my left arm slides down my right, and I discover I've lost most of my right arm. 
that's the watch. And again, I feel joyous. I've only lost an arm. They tried to kill me. I'll get better. And I had utter total conviction as I got better, my country would get better. That was in, in April 1988. And in fact, in 1990, we're back. But before then, I'm transferred to the hospital in London and I'm making good progress. I learned to sit up, the bandage is taken off, I can see through one eye, I learned to write with my left hand, round figures, dog, 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 fly, fly, long figures. Um, I want to say, look, mommy, I can write. It was that sense of joy that I'd had as a child in being able to do something I hadn't done before. But I would wake up at about four in the morning. The painkillers had worn off. The hospital's in darkness. There are no nurses around. And I'd feel a little bit sorry for myself. And then I'd sing uh, a song I'd learnt at the time. We called it a Negro Spiritual by the great African-American singer Paul Robeson. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, and I'd go, not my uncle nor my auntie. And I'm singing this to console, and it's a little bit ironical. I'm very secular, but I'm consoling myself with the spiritual. And then I'd fall asleep, wake up, the nurses are there, cup of tea, and I'd be tripper for the rest of the day. And then one day I'm shown a letter. I don't know how many of the listeners would remember the days when we used to lick stamps to put them on the letter and lick the envelope. And I open it and it says, don't worry, comrade Albie, we will avenge you. Avenge me? We're going to cut off the arms, blind in one eye? Is that the country we want? But if we get freedom, if we get democracy, that will be my soft vengeance. Roses and lilies will grow out of my arm. And I hear a couple of weeks later, they've caught one of the guys who put the bomb in comrade Albie's car and I say to myself, it's he put on trial, and the evidence does not prove beyond reasonable doubt that he's guilty and he's acquitted, that will be my soft vengeance, because then we're living under the rule of law. That matters much more than that one rascal that's thrown into jail. So that theme of soft vengeance became the theme of my life. And the soft vengeance is we smite them, not by having greater firepower and greater brute force than they've got, but through the... Um, the beauty, the strength, the validity, the sustainability of our ideals, the victory of the very things that brought us into battle in the first place, that led to the solitary confinement, that led to being blown up by South African security agents. We were fighting for forms of justice in our society and we were achieving them. And achieving that validates my life and validates everything we've been through. Very, very powerful. So it's not done even with the objective of disarming your enemies. It's done with the objective of, of transcending that level of, of brute struggle based simply on physical strength and force and command and, and power and authority mm. to the level of, of rational and humane living and, and decision-making and, and institutions and values in society. It's very powerful. And since then, so that's now since uh, dealing with 1988, uh, it's, what, 30 years. 30 years, my life has been one of soft vengeance, being able to go back home uh, to work on the Constitution, 
to get a wonderful constitution, that's soft vengeance. To vote as equals for the first time in our country, what a marvelous day it was, disproving in action the whole idea that blacks and whites can't live together in one country, disproving the notion that we needed power sharing between blacks and whites as separate groups, having different presidents representing each and getting consensus which would have kept us divided racially and would have been a total disaster. We triumphed over that. Universal franchise, common voters' role, every citizen being equal, and we have a Bill of Rights to defend the rights of everybody, not because they're black or white or majority or minority, because they're human beings. Now that's soft vengeance, that's powerful and it's working. And then to be on the court that is now defending the constitution that you helped to write and that you believed in, that encapsulated the values you've been fighting for. It's amazing, it's marvelous. And finally, to be in a wonderful building that we put up right in the heart of the very prison that had kept our political prisoners, like Gandhi and Mandela and others locked up, a beautiful building on that site with wonderful artwork and craft work and artisanal work and so on, on that particular site, that to me is soft vengeance. And to me, it's much more powerful, much more powerful than, than hard vengeance. Uh, at one stage, I was thinking that maybe the need for soft vengeance is really, it's past. But uh, I would suspend that that, that uh, speculation I had at one stage because the divisions in our society are still very sharp. Mm. The inequality is still there. Mm. Uh, there's still so much that's systemic, not in the laws, but in the economic relationships, uh, in, in the opportunities available to people. So um, what I envisage is uh, more soft vengeance rather than absence of soft vengeance, more conscious efforts towards transformation and change, but efforts that are guided by the um, Constitution, uh, containing, if you like, the spirit of the revolution, but in a constitutionalized mm. form, so that it's not just one group exercising power as a dominant power as such, it's the people who've been chosen through democratic means in a country with free speech and openness and the right to contend and debate and so on, uh, to, to lead the process of, of democratic transformation that truly empowers everybody and gets rid of the still very um, tenacious remnants in the cultural sphere, the economic sphere, in the sphere of human daily intercourse and action and so on, that still represent the, the racism and inequalities of the past. And after Mandela swore you in as a member of South Africa's highest court, the Constitutional Court, all of this incredibly difficult work um, was put into action immediately in the first decision that you signed, and the whole court signed it unanimously over the death penalty. Whether there was going to be a death penalty in the new South Africa, would the state have the power to kill its citizens? And since we're recording this in the United States, this is a very, very um, fundamental issue in this country. This country is split very much uh, evenly over this, and really the, the, the Supreme Court is kind of you know one vote away from possibly doing away with capital punishment, we are one of the few <laughs> modern uh, Western societies that, that uh, still has it. But the majority of South Africans support the death penalty, and yet the Constitutional Court uh, uh, and you unanimously 
decided not to have the death penalty. Um, can you elaborate on that and perhaps give us a, a, a sense for an American audience in particular, but I think it's applicable beyond the United States, of why it's so important, this decision that you all took unanimously and, and um, how it speaks to all those values and ideals you just spoke about so eloquently. Well, let me tell you a bit about the Constitutional Court. It was a very wonderful day for me and, and for 10 of my colleagues. Uh, February the 14th, 1995, we're in a small room. We're being sworn in as judges of the Constitutional Court. Black, white, brown, men, women. Completely new court, completely new constitution, and we're to be the top court in the country with very extensive powers given to us by the Constitution. And we're particularly happy because Nelson Mandela is presiding over the swearing-in. Uh, and he begins by saying that uh, the last time I was in court was to find out if I was going to be sentenced to death. Today, I'm here today to inaugurate South Africa's first constitutional court, a court uh, whose work will ensure that democracy is being retained in this country. And we were all particularly thrilled that he was there. I'd been in the resistance with him. Uh, the head of the court had been involved in the famous Ravonia trial where he'd faced the death sentence and ended by saying to the judge, uh, I've fought against white domination, I've fought against black domination, I've fought for rights for everybody. These are the ideals for which I've lived and these are the ideals for which I'm prepared to die. And his counsel, George Bezos, said, uh, Nelson, you're almost asking, challenging the judge to hang you. Shouldn't you say, if needs be, I'm prepared to die? And so now the voice is recorded as saying, and these are the ideals which, if needs be, I'm prepared to die for. And um, now he's the person presiding on that occasion. And others had ready speeches, attended conferences, workshops where he'd spoken, and we were absolutely thrilled that Mandela was there on that occasion. And how did we show our respect? Six months later, we struck down two very important proclamations which he'd issued, uh, dealing with the first democratic local government elections. Parliament had noticed the time was running out. We'd had national elections on a common voters' roll. We still didn't have a single non-racial or multiracial local council. And they got into panic with time and they said, Mr. President, pass the necessary rules and regulations to ensure the money is available, that there'll be a secret ballot, uh, no intimidation, things of that kind. And he'd issued those proclamations and they'd been challenged by an opposition party on all sorts of grounds. And the challenge had come to our court and we declared the proclamations progressive for a positive purpose issued by the president whom we loved and admired to be unconstitutional. Why? Because we said our constitution gave the power to pass laws to parliament, not to the president. And parliament could pass a law and ask the president to dot the I's and cross the T's, but couldn't give the president primary lawmaking function very profound constitutional principle. 
and we struck down the law made by Mandela for a positive purpose. We were very interested to see how he would react. Parliament was in recess. It would be necessary to get everybody to fly down, to drive down in a hurry. Uh, it would be very expensive. Uh, and he could say, who the hell are they? I appointed them. I was 27 years in jail. And now they're coming. I'm doing something for the nation. How dare they? He goes on to television and he said, when I adopted these proclamations, I acted on legal advice that I had the authority to do so, given to me by Parliament. The Constitutional Court has spoken, uh, and I as President must be the first to respect the decision of the Constitution, their decision on the Constitution as interpreted by that Court. For me, that was a marvellous day, as important as the day when we voted as equals for democracy. It was the day we became a constitutional democracy. Mm. So the Constitution being that body that, that incorporates the foundational norms for our country, uh, fundamental rights of citizens, fundamental duties and responsibilities on the organs of power, restrained by the whole uh, character uh, and structure of the Constitution. Uh, now, for me, this is an important point to make in relation to how we dealt with particular issues that um, uh, could be very unpopular in terms of the outcomes, in terms of the, the nation. The very first case we had was on capital punishment. Um, 400 people on death row. Their lives literally depended on our, our decision. And we unanimously decided uh, our constitution did not say no one shall be uh, executed without due process of law or didn't say everyone has the right to life, liberty, property. Uh, no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It didn't as the Namibian constitution did and the, Zimba and the, the Mozambican forbid capital punishment. It left it open. It left it open because when negotiating we couldn't agree the old regime representing the whites couldn't imagine a society that did not execute its members of its population. The organization led by Mandela, who'd been close to being hanged himself, couldn't imagine that part of our freedom would permit the state cold-bloodedly taking the lives of citizens, whatever they might have done. And we couldn't agree, we couldn't postpone elections because we couldn't agree. So the matter was left open and for the Constitution to decide on the Bill of Rights as a whole, did it authorize capital punishment in certain limited circumstances or forbid it completely? We heard argument over three days. Mandela sent that lawyer, George Bezos, in the name of the government to argue for abolition as a constitutional requirement. Uh, but we had people representing the state to defend capital punishment. We never discussed our cases in advance. It became a principle of we're all going to court without knowing what our colleagues are thinking. We hear the argument, we assemble afterwards, we go round the table, round and round and round, like a workshop. 
we're inventing ourselves. We can't use precedent. There's no precedent. It's a new court. We couldn't use the precedent of the old racist South African courts. Mm. So mired in racism, we didn't want to even use technical things from them. We had to have a completely fresh start with the new constitution based on democratic South Africa. So we workshopped. And the head of the court, Arthur Chaskelson, having listened to all of us, wrote a superb judgment. It's the first time he'd written a legal, uh, a, a court opinion. Because he had never been a judge. Never been a judge. Uh, he wouldn't have been invited. If invited, he would have refused. <laughs> and um, it dealt with international law, practice in other countries, the majority-minority positions in the United States, Canada, uh, majority-minority positions in India. The United States and India, almost the only two countries that were normally called democratic that still allowed capital punishment. The rest of Europe, uh, whole of Europe had abolished it, Canada had abolished it, most of Latin America had abolished it, and it was not competent in most African countries. Um, uh, he introduced us to the notion of proportionality, which has become central to most of the work of the court and most constitutional courts in the world. The Supreme Court of the United States is almost unique in being virtually the only court that doesn't use proportionality in its analysis. It's all done in terms of uh, text and, and the reach of the text and interpretation, um, um, canons of interpretation that are used you know, for, for the Constitution. And the thrust of his argument was that the purposes of punishment are, are um, uh, rehabilitation, well, clearly, if you execute, you can't rehabilitate. Uh, prevention, but you can prevent by keeping the person locked up. Uh, and deterrence. And deterrence was the only rational justification for capital punishment. It would deter others from committing the crime. That was their main argument. Uh, and he said the information we received from different parts of the world, the studies had indicated that capital punishment was no more effective a deterrence than the threat of a long term of imprisonment. Uh, the consequences were so grave, you needed some powerful extra deterrent value, and it, that, that didn't, couldn't be shown to exist. And we all agreed to that. But that wasn't why I was opposed to capital punishment. Uh, even if a deterrent value could be shown, there's some things you just don't do in a modern democratic state based on principles of humanity. You don't use torture, uh, not because the results are, are, are unreliable. There are lots of things that are unreliable. You, you still allow them. You don't do it because the whole purpose of the legal system is to protect humanity, humane values. And, and you just don't do it. It used to be standard. It was publicly sanctioned by the state for, for decades. We've advanced beyond that. And so the state does not kill in cold blood. It's reducing reverence for life, respect for life. It creates a morbid quality uh, where just, the state itself becomes the killer. And in that sense, everybody becomes complicit in the crime of killing. Uh, one of my colleagues on the bench, uh, Sidney Kentridge, was an acting judge then, quoted a journalist who said, you're not punishing the crime, you're repeating the crime. Mm 
any event, those, those were my reasons for mm. opposing. Uh, and one by one, my colleagues all said they had their own reasons. So we ended up with 11 judges and 11 opinions. The main one we all agreed to, and 10 separate ones. And we were unanimous. We just felt this new country, this new society, based on principles of humanity, rejecting apartheid, getting beyond that, we just can't allow the state to execute it, its citizens, whatever they've done. However abominable they were, we don't use an abomination to counter abomination. Uh, my one colleague, um, Iran Mohoro, introduced the African notion of Ubuntu, uh, very deep in African culture and society. I'm a person because you're a person. I can't separate my humanity from acknowledging, recognizing your humanity. It, it's, it's a notion of human interdependence and the idea that we blot out, we sever the life of somebody with whom we mm. interdepend and mm. she found obnoxious. Uh, and that deep sense of humanity in African people who suffered so much historically through racism, through poverty and so on, never losing that sense of connection, I believe became the foundation for our Bill of Rights. So it wasn't just a nice gloss on the Bill of Rights, it was actually, uh, in, in a socio-cultural sense, foundational to our Bill of Rights. Uh, and in her case, it fed very strongly into her uh, detestation of, of, of capital punishment. Now, there wasn't dancing in the streets, but there was respect for the fact that the court had taken a decision which had reasoned. We set out our reasons very, very fully, uh, and, and we gave justifications for the conclusion that we came to. So, no jubilation, but respect. Perhaps to bring the conversation to a close, uh, recently the Constitutional Court had a major role to play in the crisis uh, surrounding uh, former president now, Jacob Zuma's case in which public funds were used for improvements at his private home in uh, KwaZulu-Natal. And uh, just about 10 weeks ago, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa succeeded uh, Jacob Zuma as president. Uh, can you give the listeners a sense of what you think the future holds for South Africa under Cyril Ramaphosa's uh, leadership? And, and what, what has he done already that gives you a sense of where he's going? Well, can I just mention, it's called the Nkandla case, because his private homestead was in the Nkandla area. Uh, and he was entitled to get security as the president at the time, uh, get state funds for his security. But a swimming pool? Uh, come on. Uh, a chicken run? That couldn't be sustained. A little amphitheater? None of that had anything to do with security. And we have a chapter in our constitution, it's called Chapter 9, Institutions for the Protection of Democracy. It's another unique feature of our constitution. It includes the Auditor General, it includes the Independent Electoral Commission, uh, it includes the um, Judicial Service Commission responsible for selecting judges, uh, the Commission for Gender Equality, for Human Rights, and, and, and other bodies like that. Uh, and they are given special ring fencing by the Constitution. They're not appointed by the Executive. They're appointed by Parliament. A special majority is required after public examination, so and they can't be dismissed except with a supermajority in Parliament. 
So the public protector, that's one of those officers uh, in Chapter 9, was given the power to investigate alleged abuses of state functions and, and powers. Uh, and the public protector had come to the conclusion that they'd been overspending in terms of the security upgrades and that he should pay back a reasonable amount of the expenses involved. She'd sent the report to Parliament, but instead of Parliament insisting on compliance, Parliament set up its own committee uh, and said, in fact, <laughs> the state owes him some money and that swimming pool wasn't a swimming pool, it was a fire pool for security in case there was a fire. I mean, everybody was laughing about it, you know, a fire pool with blue tiles at the bottom and one end deeper than the other. Um, so the Constitutional Court said that the report by the public protector is not just a recommendation to Parliament. In terms of the, the, the powers given to the public protector, it's obliged to be followed unless taken on review, judicial review. Parliament itself can't sidestep the issue. It's obliged to ensure compliance. Uh, and the Chief Justice, we watched on television when he's reading out the decision, and I might say I'm a strong believer in televising Supreme Court decisions. They are so educational. Let the public know what's going on. If you say there's grandstanding, you get grandstanding anyhow, even without it. Uh, and the public can see through that you know, quite easily. Oh, there's that judge showing off again. Um, uh, and we heard him at the beginning of his presentation saying that the president is not simply the head of state with certain functions. The president has to be an exemplar of the values of the Constitution. Uh, and it's so important in our country to chop the stiff neck of corruption off at the neck, something like that. Uh, it was very, very powerful. Uh, and the net result was not only to halt in their tracks all the people conniving at uh, disregarding the law and just um, sucking up to the president. Um, it revitalized parliament. It was a real shake-up for parliament. And instead of this being judicial overreaching that was tamping down parliament, it had just the opposite effect. It revitalized parliament created a whole new atmosphere in the country, and together with other factors, created a ferment inside the ANC, which led to our president steps down after two terms. President uh, Jacob Zuma was working very hard for his former wife, uh, Kosozana Tlemini Zuma, uh, who's a good, decent person, an old friend of mine from way back. but wasn't the right person at that time to take over the leadership and would have been seen as being beholden to him. Mm. Uh, she didn't win the leadership. Cyril Ramaphosa was chosen uh, with very strong evidence of a vast amount of fake branches, uh, manipulation of the voting. And in spite of that, he won through. Uh, and he could only manage it through going to the branches getting the support of the old people who'd been in the struggle years back, now going to the branch meetings, voting, getting the delegates through, uh, and he took over as president. And immediately we saw the change. Uh, one important little thing, it seemed a tiny little thing, was 
few days after he'd been chosen, we have the annual January the 8th statement by the ANC, the date of its founding. It's due to start at 10.30 a.m. The journalists are there, knowing that if it starts at 1 o'clock, that will be early, or 2 o'clock. These things always take time. At 10.30 it started. And Jacob Zuma himself hadn't turned up. The president of Kenya hadn't turned up. We carry on. The tiny little thing, but it was just saying this is a new mm. country now. We obey the law. We have to set the example ourselves. And he um, immediately said our first function is to get rid of state capture. Uh, the, the people who for corrupt ends, uh, serving a family, not even a South African family, uh, working outside the state, uh, getting their own appointees, particularly for the uh, state-owned enterprises, electricity, uh, bodies like that, uh, a lot of transport, uh, broadcasting, were, were being uh, white-anted by corrupt people, uh, and it's criminal. Uh, and they, the boards have to be changed, uh, the, the people responsible for this have to be prosecuted. Uh, and he took steps immediately. We saw the change in the board representation uh, and, and we saw the beginnings of investigations, the police now doing their job in a way they hadn't done before, the prosecuting authorities doing that. It, it's a different country from that point of view. Uh, and there's a new energy uh, which is notable everywhere. And in addition, Saul Ramaphosa is, is seasoned, he's stylish, uh, he's in touch with the modern world, he reaches out to everybody, and he's very, very clever. He was the head of our negotiating team when we got our marvelous constitution, and he was always ahead of us. We had a lot of smart people. He was ahead of us. Uh, and when seeing the, the, the quality of, of his positions, uh, and it's not just, I'm the boss now, I'm taking control. He's working through institutions, following correct procedures, rallying as many people around as possible, and not turning it into something that looks like a personal agenda that he has and a vindictive process to get rid of his opponents. It's not getting rid of opponents, it's getting rid of rot. That's the way people are talking, that's the way I'm talking now. Uh, and... and um, I feel very encouraged by um, the support that he's getting from the broad public and the way it's revitalized the public service, the public administration, uh, and brought elements of real open debate back uh, in, into the public domain. Well, that's a great uplifting note to end on uh, Justice Albi Sachs. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and thank you so much for joining us for Africa Past and Present. And thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>